you're new here, welcome. Uh, you sit for my words, but we just love to stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 8, if someone has it in one of the blue Bibles, mine's the large letter edition, so, but if you have a blue Bible, can you yell out the page number? 819, thank you. We're going through Mark's gospel, we've made it to chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. Wonder if they're getting a little excited. (laughs) I hope so. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They also had a few small fish as well. And Jesus gave thanks, and he told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples. He went to the region of Dalmathua. And the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves to the 5,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke seven loaves to the 4,000, how many basketful pieces did you pick up? Seven, they answered. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is God's word. You can be seated. And I'm actually supposed to preach on the last story as well, which I will refer to at the end. But if you get a little bored during my sermon, you can just start uh, looking there. Um, All of these stories that we're reading in Mark's gospel are not random. And this includes the miracles. There's there's great intentionality going on, uh, first by Jesus, and then by Mark, who's probably authoring this book. Um, as well. So let me start just by, by framing uh, these stories that, that we just read. The imagery that the prophets used to describe the Messiah, and this imagery would have been so in their minds, especially as they're curious about Jesus. 
I mean, this imagery, it's profound, it's, it, it's beautiful, it's, it's this explosion of, of new life and delicious food and, and new creation. For instance, Isaiah 35, which we looked at last week, talks about the desert, uh, how the desert itself, this desert that, that they looked at, it was their front yard from Jerusalem, um, it, it, it's something that uh, every Jew uh, passed through if they were going to a feast, they'd make their way through this desert. It's, it, it's hot, it's dry, it's, it's barren. And Isaiah 35 says, this desert, it's going to bloom. It's going to explode with life. So look at that and imagine that taking place. And then Isaiah 35 also says that out of this desert, there's going to be a path. And this path, because so many people are walking it, will become a highway, and the people walking on this, what is called a holy highway, are only, are only the holy. Not an unclean person will be on this path. This is the imagery that they had when Messiah comes. Or Isaiah 25 uh, depicts this great banquet that's, that's going to be hosted by Messiah himself, uh, called the Messianic Banquet. This extravagant feast, as Isaiah 25 describes it, the finest of wines, the choicest of meats, the, the, the finest of, 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 of eatery. And so here's the question. Who's going to be at that table? And the thought that was so prevalent in Jesus' day was only God's people would sit at the messianic table. Only the clean. And in their minds, they said, we are the clean. The rest of the world, the Gentiles, the pagans, they're unclean. So the messianic banquet is for us. We're the ones who are going to be walking on that holy highway. And see, their whole religion was premised on, on, on separating oneself from from the unclean, whether it was unclean places, unclean things, unclean food, unclean people. And, and because this was such the pursuit of their life, this intense us and them was formed in their thinking. And I had a small taste of this growing up. I went to a Christian school and we kind of thought this way. Uh, us and them with people that went to the public school. But this is just a small taste of what's going on in Jesus' world. And Jesus shatters their paradigm, their us and them paradigm, by shattering the foundation that it's built upon. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus just says, look, unclean, it's, it, it's not out there. It's, it's not something that is on the outside that, that comes in. He says, no, the source of all unclean is within a person, the heart. The heart is what's unclean. And immediately following uh, this teaching, Jesus takes his disciples to unclean places, to the pagans, the Gentiles, or as they referred to it in their day, as it's referred to in the Gospels, he takes them to the other side. In fact, in Matthew uh, 14, 22, uh, it literally says that Jesus had to force the disciples to get into a boat to go to the other side. 
because this us and them, this clean, unclean uh, paradigm is so ingrained in them. And now we come to Mark chapter 8, and Jesus is still on this tour uh, to the Gentiles, to the unclean. And now our text begins with this story of a second feeding miracle. Now this, this miracle isn't just another miracle. This miracle, this miracle is a real life parable. I mean, Jesus right now, is, he's, he, he's Rembrandt. He, he, he's painting a masterpiece uh, through, through this miracle. He, he's, he's painting a picture. It's loaded with meaning. So here's the context. This huge crowd has been with Jesus for three days, just listening to him, flocking to him, uh, listening to all the things that he's teaching. Jesus notices that a crisis is developing again, and this isn't their first rodeo. All right, guys, we've been here before. You know how my heart breaks for people when they find themselves in this situation. At this point, the disciples should be like, let's go. Let's go, Jesus. You are the bread of life. You did it once. Just tell us what to do. That's not how they respond in verse 4. It says his disciples responded, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Where are we going to get food? In fact, the word for remote place in the original language is aremos tapos, uh, which is the Greek for our English word wilderness. They're in the wilderness. The first feeding that Jesus did was a different location than this second feeding, but Mark also wants us to know that that feeding happened also in the context of Aramos Tapos, wilderness. Because this detail is very important to the picture that Jesus is painting. This is more than a miracle. Listen, listen to Psalm 78, verse 19. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? And Jesus now is answering that question. He's the fulfillment of that verse. He prepares a feast, a banquet in the wilderness, not once, but now a second time. And then Jesus and the disciples get in the boat, they return home, and the disciples realize that they have forgotten bread, and they kind of freak out. <laughs> Are you, they're freaking out. Thank you. I mean, uh, Jesus just fed 4,000 people, and you're freaking out about bread. And that's why Jesus responds the way that he does in verses 17 through 20, which I can pretty much just sum up this way. Jesus essentially is saying, come on, guys, you guys still don't see you're still blind? And what is it that Jesus wants them to see? It's not just so much the miracle itself. He wants them to see the meaning of the miracle. And the meaning of the miracle is in the leftovers. Because the first feeding was in Israel proper, what we Christians today call the Holy Land. 
But in Jesus' day, it was oftentimes referred to as the land of the 12, because this is the land that God gave to the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Then the region around Israel proper, around the land of the 12, uh, where the Gentiles and the pagans lived, was oftentimes in Jesus' day called the land of the seven, because it's a reference to the seven pagan nations who were expelled from the land in the book of Joshua. And this is another way in which they are making sense of the us and them, the clean, the unclean. We're the land of the 12, they're the land of the expelled ones, the land of the seven. So what Jesus is highlighting here, when he feeds the 5,000 in the land of the 12, how many leftovers, he asks the disciples, 12. And when Jesus feeds the 4,000 in the land of the seven, how many leftovers were there? Seven. And then when you know who Jesus is in this parable, in this miracle, because in both miracles, he takes the bread, he breaks it, and then he blesses it, because Jesus is saying, I am the bread, I am the food, and the way that I bless is by being broken. And in being, in being bread in the land of the 12 with 12 leftovers, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm enough. I'm sufficient for the land of the 12. And the seven leftovers in the land of the seven, he's saying, I'm not just food and bread for the Jew. I'm the bread of life for the whole world. And what's so powerful about this teaching is that the disciples from that boat can look and see where where both of these feedings took place. And Jesus is saying to these guys, look disciples, see the locations of these two miracles and count the baskets because when you do, you'll start to realize that with me, there is no us in them. There's no us in them culturally. There's no us in them religiously. There's no us in them racially. There's no us in them politically. There's no other side. Jesus treats everyone the same way. His banquet, his banqueting table is for everybody. And this is consistent with, with, with what the prophet said, Isaiah 25, depic, depicting uh, that, that messianic banquet to come, says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for who? All nations, all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And here are the disciples Think about this. They have the bread of life in their boat. And Mark wants to highlight with one loaf, Jesus is the one loaf for the 12. So what are you doing fretting about bread? Do you still not understand, guys? Do you still not see? And we see that this, this spiritual blindness is, is, is not just something that the, the disciples are going through, but when Jesus returns from his tour of the Gentiles, the moment he steps foot on Jewish soil, who's there to meet him in verse 11? Uh, but the Pharisees and 
they immediately demand from him a sign. Jesus, give us a sign. <laughs> really? <laughs> you want a sign? And how does Jesus respond to this? He sighs deeply. This is his response to spiritual blindness. The Pharisees are blind. People who demand signs, people who need signs, are blind because they're asking for a Jesus on their terms. It's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus a happy marriage. Jesus plus a healthy, wealthy life. Jesus plus success at my job. In my opinion, he, he still has this tour from the land of the unclean where he went to Tyre and Sidon that's still fresh in his mind because look at what he says in Matthew's gospel. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it will be for you. And the next verse, woe to you, Capernaum. You're going to hell, he says. He says, if the miracles done in Capernaum were done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented a long time ago. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to think and consider that the most spiritual people of Jesus' day are blind. And then as we've been going through Mark's gospel, maybe the biggest shocker that are, are, are the people that can see. It's, it's the outsider, it's the social outcast, the unclean, it's the sinners, it's the prostitutes, it's the tax collectors. They're the ones who can see. See, and it's here that, the, that Jesus issues this huge warning to his disciples and this warning that he issues to them is the root cause of spiritual blindness. In verse 15, he says to the disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And think about when you see that word beware on a sign or caution. Watch out. Beware of the yeast. Why yeast? Well, yeast, which is also sometimes called leaven, is one of the Bible's most powerful metaphors for sin. And I understand that, that most of us today are, are so removed from the art of bread making. Most of us, I said, not all of us. Um, so we don't really see the power of, of this metaphor. But in the, in the first century, uh, bread is the staple of the ancient world's diet. It's their main course for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, and also, you have to understand, they aren't buying their bread at a bakery or a grocery store. Every family is making its own bread. So yeast or leaven were as common uh, in this world as what a cell phone would be in our world. They're making bread all day, every day. Now, what you need to know about bread, here's 
bread making 101. It's the yeast that actually makes bread bread because yeast is a catalyst. It's actually a living thing. And so when you put a, even just a small amount of this living thing yeast into a lump of dough, it instantly spreads to the whole lump. And as yeast spreads, it's digesting the sugar, creating carbon dioxide, causing then the lump to rise through the process of fermentation, which is decay. And if the yeast sits too long in the dough before cooking, all the sweetness is taken out, and thus that's how you make sourdough bread. Now who wants to go home and make bread today? Can you see, though, how yeast then becomes a powerful metaphor for sin? If I put two clumps of dough before you, one with yeast and one without yeast, you could not pick which one has yeast. I want us to think about that. Because this is sin. Sin like yeast, so often it's unseen. It's it's within us. But oftentimes it's undetected and hidden. It's in our hidden thoughts. It's in our hidden attitudes. It's in our intentions, our ambitions. The things that, that, that no one else can see. God says to the prophet Samuel, he says, man looks at the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, I look at the inside. I look at the inward, at the unseen. I look at the heart. And see, Jesus is using this metaphor of leaven or yeast to explain why people can't see why they are spiritually blind. He says, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. (laughs) If you know anything about the world of the Bible in the first century, this is one amazing grouping of people. The fact that Jesus just lumped the Pharisees in with Herod. I mean, I don't even know what the equivalent of that would be like today. I mean, would it be like putting a leftist and a fundamentalist in, in, in the same bucket? I mean, you're, you're looking at two totally opposite kinds of people, at least on the appearance. I mean, Herod is the epitome of a worldly man. He's someone who's drunk on money, sex, and power. And everyone can see Herod's sin. His obsession with image, his decadent lifestyle, every new, everyone knew what Herod was about. How he used people, exploited people for his own gain. On the other hand, the Pharisees, they were anti-world. They lived to be separate from the world. Along with the fact that they were considered to be the most spiritual people of their day. They did so much good for the world. But according to Jesus, sin is yeast. And yeast is something that is unseen. It's the intentions. It's the motives of a person's heart. 
And think about some of the things that, that in other places that Jesus says about, about the Pharisee. Like in Matthew 6, he says, don't pray like the Pharisees. They like to be seen and praised for their prayers. He says, don't help the poor like the Pharisees. They like to brag about it on social media. That's what he'd say today. He says, don't fast like the Pharisees. They do it for show, to, to have leverage over people in God. See, on the appearance of things, the Pharisee couldn't be more different than Herod, but, but we need to hear Jesus' warning here because what Jesus is saying, but underneath it all, they're the same. They're both filled with self-importance and self-exalting motives. Herod used people for personal gain. Pharisees used God for personal gain. Jesus, give us a sign. What does this all mean? Well, for starters, good people usually aren't as good as you think they are, and bad people usually aren't as bad as you think they are. Or take the most spiritual, godly person you know right now, that person can be just as rotten to the core as any pagan. And you might never know it from the outside, but, but on the inside, they're the same. You Pharisee, you clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside of the cup, you are rotten. You are whitewashed gravestones. Do you see the scary stuff that we have run into? When we use yeast as a metaphor for sin, it means that sin is this living thing. It's oftentimes hidden. It's unseen. It resides in the intentions and the motives of a person's heart. And unless we look there, we're in great, great danger of being blind. I will be the first to say it as a pastor who has served the church most of my adult life. We can serve God. We can serve people for the most selfish reasons. We can pursue God. We can even live for him with such self-exalting motives. We can minister to people. We can help the poor and yet do these things out of nothing other than our own self-importance. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples, beware caution. The most dangerous sin is not the sin that you can see. It's the sin that you can't see. And maybe the scariest thing about this metaphor is how yeast actually spreads. I mean, you put just the smallest amount in a lump of dough and it's going to spread through it almost immediately. It's the same thing with sin. We can't keep sin tucked away in a closet. We can't keep sin in a corner. Once it breaks in, it's going to break out and spread through the hole. And sometimes I get people who ask me, why do we talk about sin so much? Can we be just a little bit more positive? <laughs> Because Jesus does. 
And when he uses yeast as a metaphor for sin, he is telling us that we need to respect sin. We need to respect the potency of sin. And if we think that we can control it and manage it and keep it in its place, we are fooling ourselves. For instance, I'll just give you an example. Some of you right now uh, have been hurt, and in light of that hurt, you're nursing a grudge. Uh, and rather than doing the hard work of forgiveness and, and possibly reconciliation, you just feed that hurt, you nurse that hurt, you justify your hatred, you take this victim identity, you slander that person who hurt you in your heart. And of course forgiveness is hard, but sin is like leaven. And if we don't root it out over time, this leaven, this yeast will spread through the hole and it will make us sour, take all the life out of us. This is true about lust. This is true about idolatry, pride, selfishness, coveting, discontentment, anger, jealousy, greed. A little yeast spreads to our lives so fast and it makes us sour and bitter where all the sweetness is gone. Several years ago, my dad was diagnosed with melanoma and that surgeon went in, it was in his face not only cut out the melanoma, but cut out all the glands along the right side of his face and neck. Because if that cancer was not aggressively treated at that time, my dad wouldn't be alive today. And if you and I don't deal with our own sin that way, it will always become more. It will spread like cancer. It will break in. It will destroy us. And it will hurt the people around us. What is the yeast in your life? Do you know it? See, if we don't have the guts to look at it and and look into the recesses of our own heart and, and deal with our sin and get real about it and confess it and repent of it, we will be blind like the Pharisees. We'll be in this constant state of denial, projecting, blaming, uh, not knowing our deep, deep need. And always being critical of other people, always hurting ourselves and hurting the people around us. Now think about this. After everything that Jesus has done, the Pharisees are asking him for a sign. Again, what's behind that? One word, entitlement. And the root of all entitlement is this inflated inflated view of self. Look, Jesus, we're the people who pray, we tithe, we give, we help the poor, we keep the commandments, we go to church on Sunday, we deserve a sign. And just contrast the arrogance of the Pharisees with the humility of the Syrophoenician woman several weeks ago where she just, she could take the hard words of Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus, I know, I don't deserve anything, but just a crumb, please. Please. 
And see, in asking for a sign, what they have done is they have rejected Jesus. They have rejected Jesus' offer of grace because they don't even see a need for grace. They're too proud to know how much they need grace. And you could say that too is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is it's pride which causes our heart to say, Jesus, you're not enough. I need more. Give me a sign. And some of you are doing the same thing with Jesus today. You're saying, Jesus, I, I, I need a sign. I, I, I need you to prove yourself to me. I, I, I can't trust you unless you get me through this situation or unless you give me this. Or, or some of you are looking at your life and you're saying, why should I be a Christian? It hasn't made my life any better. You're asking for a sign. And here's the problem with, 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 with signs, that once we get one sign, we're just going to demand another sign, and a sign in the end will never satisfy because God made us for, him so, for himself, and our souls are restless until we rest in him. Only Jesus satisfies. And this is the yeast of the Pharisees. It's, it's, it's the condition of being spiritually blind. And here are the two things that they are blind to. And ask yourself if you are blind in the same way. Number one, they are blind to their deep, desperate need. As Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, you're, you're pitiful, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And see, because they so obsessed in cleaning the outside of the cup, they didn't see how rotten the inside was. And because they were blind to their, to their need, therefore they were blind to Jesus. They were blind to Jesus and all that Jesus offers, his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, a new heart. I mean, I think about Paul, how Paul was once a Pharisee. And Paul could say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but, but now I'm fi- found. I was blind, but, but now I see. And I, I, I think about Paul writing to those Christians in Ephesus when he's just saying to them how deep and long and wide is the love of God through Jesus Christ. Paul just experienced oceans of of God's love in Christ just being poured out on him. And how can Paul experience that? How can Paul say this? It's because Paul could also say, I, Paul, am the chief of sinners. He could say, what a wretched man that I am. See, this is the secret to getting the leaven out of our, our, our lives. It's, it's through this personal experience of God's grace, which is given to us in Jesus Christ, that undeserved grace and mercy that he's lavished upon us. Are you too blind to see? Amen. Do you have deep, deep, desperate need for Christ right now? Is your heart like Paul's ravished with Jesus? 
Can you honestly say today, Jesus, you are enough? Not Jesus plus something else. Jesus, you are enough. See, there's a reason why Jesus' next miracle is healing a blind man. With this miracle, Jesus takes just his disciples and the blind man away from the crowd because this miracle is actually for the disciples. It's the time when Jesus heals the blind man and says, can you see? And it's like the first time it didn't work because he says, I I see trees moving. So then Jesus does the miracle again and the second time uh, he can see clearly and, and, and the miracle itself is a parable. Jesus is giving the disciples a picture of themselves. He's enabling them to see themselves as they truly are. The disciples can see, but they can't see. But eventually they will see. But they're in process. And Jesus is going to stay committed to these guys until they do see, which is just so encouraging. Because I'm in process, you're in process. Jesus isn't giving up on anybody. But at this point, this is Jesus saying to the disciples, don't be too proud to admit that you can't see. And don't be too proud to come to me and beg me to open your eyes. Are you too proud to be healed? Are you too proud to fall at Jesus' feet? To admit your need and say, Jesus, I am blind, I can't see. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. And I'll be the first to confess, Jesus, there's, there's still a lot of Pharisee in me. And Jesus, thank you that you disciple us and that you never give up on us. God, may we come to you and fall at your feet Jesus, open our eyes that we could see who we are and all that you've done for us, how much you love us.